This Dharma talk by John Sutherland Roshi, Red Dust One, was given at Cerro Gordo Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico, on October 18, 2008. As many of you know, um, I've begun to write a book, and so for the next, let us hope, a little while, um, occasionally I'll be giving talks that come out of some of the territory I'm exploring as I, as I um, embark on this deeply humbling task of writing a book. Um, and I wanted to talk tonight maybe just a little bit about some of the background of what I'm thinking as, again, many of you know, this summer I was um, called away to perform a funeral for an old and dear friend in another state. And um, as I was driving up through that great, vast, empty, northeastern New Mexico landscape, I was thinking a lot about um, when we end up in the fire, as many of us do, when we're cremated. There's a, a koan that talks about the great eon-ending fire, the great kalpa-ending fire that happens where everything is, is burned in this great conflagration and the koan explores the question of what's that like, what's it like and how in some ways every time one of us goes into the cremation fires it's like an eon ending, it's a whole kalpa that disappears in the fire with it. And in this particular case, um, he had died in a fiery motor accident, road accident, in which a big rig went up, and it was really spectacular. So that was fiery, and his death, which was obviously completely unexpected, set off a kind of metaphorical fire in his family. So I was thinking about all these conflagrations of various kinds and the mystery of them, and what came to mind was... Um, teaching that the Buddha gave that's come to be known as the Fire Sermon. So I wanted to uh, begin tonight with a little bit on the Fire Sermon. The Buddha said, The all is a flame. What all is a flame? The eye is a flame. Forms are a flame. Consciousness at the eye is a flame. Contact at the eye is a flame. And whatever there is that arises in dependence on contact at the eye, experienced as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, that too is a flame. A flame with what? A flame with the fire of passion, the fire of aversion, the fire of delusion. A flame, I tell you, with birth, aging, and death with sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despairs. And he goes on through this litany, and he's, he's begun with the eye, and he goes on to the ear is a flame, sounds are a flame, the nose is a flame, aromas are a flame, the tongue is a flame, flavors are a flame, the body is a flame, sensations are a flame, the intellect is a flame, ideas are a flame. So, pretty complete picture of a world on fire. And then he says, seeing thus, we grow disenchanted with the eye, disenchanted with forms, disenchanted with consciousness of the eye, disenchanted with contact of the eye. 
and whatever there is that arises in dependence on contact with the eye, experienced as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, with that too, we grow disenchanted. And he does another litany about disenchantment with the ear and so on through the, the mind and the body. Disenchanted with the body, disenchanted with sensations, disenchanted with the intellect, disenchanted with ideas. And then he closes by saying, disenchanted, we become dispassionate. Through dispassion, we are fully released. With full release, there is knowledge. Fully, rece fully released, we discern that birth is depleted, the holy life is fulfilled, the task is done. There is nothing further for this world. And I was thinking about how I know that state of everything feeling as though it's a flame. We talked last year about a con involving Dungshan, where he says, um, I do everything as if the whole world was spewing flames. And in, in that poem, there's a sense of everything spewing flames as being an indication of how vivid and alive everything is. But I, I don't think that's the Buddhist point at all. I think he's, he's talking about another state entirely when we are so, our own um, emotions and thoughts and neurology, and, you know, and gastrointestinal systems and all of it are so aflame um, with the things that cause us to suffer that it's painful and difficult. And, um, and again, I, you know, that's, that's a state I certainly understand and can remember. And I also notice that um, it seems entirely possible to me, by my own experience and the experience of many others, that it doesn't have to be like that all the time. It doesn't have to stay like that. That there's a possibility of um, dampening down of those fires, even putting out of those fires. And in ways that are different than the, the solution that the Buddha recommends. He talks about growing disenchanted, and I think that's something that's terribly important to happen at a certain time in our lives, or over and over again in our lives. We might call it something like disidentifying, disidentifying with um, other people's opinions, or our own opinions, or things that are happening, or all of that. Um, and then he, but he goes on to say that that disen disenchantment leads to a kind of dispassion and then to, to release and um, a kind of a state of being fully released in which you discern that birth is depleted. So the cycles of birth and death are done, they're over. You've depleted them. The holy life is fulfilled and the task is done. And what that means is there's nothing further for this world. So. It seems to me that to this challenge of things being aflame, it's possible to have another response that doesn't end in there is nothing further for this world, that might indeed end in a movement not away from the world and life, but deeper into the world and life. And um, that that is certainly, in my understanding, what the koan way is about. It's a way of moving in deeper while at the same time developing the, the dispassion in the best sense that allows those fires to be banged and allows them not to be in the way of everything all the time, allows them not to be demanding our attention all the time so that we can actually get closer to life, move in closer, 
have less separation. And um, I think the the great um, and, and beautiful question that we ask in the koan way is, is that a way and equally as effective in, um, in responding to the challenge of everything being a flame? So, um, I wanted to um, kind of sketch out a, a, a pilgrim's path for this way. If, if we say, for us maybe, not the way that leads out of the world, then what's, what's the alternative? What are we offering as a, another way of doing it? And that seems to be our deep exploration together as we work with the koans together. So to give it a little bit of a kind of a body, I wanted to, to talk about the way it feels to me right now, which is that uh, we begin the pilgrim's journey in the red dust. The red dust is an old Chinese name for the world of our ordinary lives. And I just love it, you know, because it's beautiful. Just the image of the red dust world is beautiful. And also it has a kind of strangeness because it comes from another continent and a time long ago. And that seems to me to somehow mirror the strangeness of our ordinary lives, the way it feels kind of strange and dreamlike, like a red dust world from another time and place. And yet here we are in it. Here we are living in it. Um, the red dust world is made up certainly of the material, you know, um, and other people and all of that. And it's also made up of our stories about the material world and other people. Um, uh, it's about, it's, it's made up of karma and um, imagination and um, all those things as well. But I think it's really important to say that there are aspects of the red dust world that would be common for all of us. We probably all agree that we're sitting on a wooden floor. But there might be lots of things we would describe right now in this particular room in the red dust world that would be different for each of us. So it's made up of that combination of the exterior world and our interior world in relationship to it. So it has a couple of um, important qualities, it seems to me. And one is that the dreamlike quality that is immediately invoked by the red dust. There is a sense of dream or illusion or things not being quite what they seem often in the red dust world. And for some of us, there is also a sense of something else, that if we could just sweep the dust away, if we could just clear it away a little bit, we could see something truer and realer than the appearance of the red dust world. And we also maybe find that the, the red dust doesn't just blow outside, but that it comes inside and it settles in our hearts and minds. And sometimes things can feel heavy under the weight of the red dust, or sometimes they can feel obscured when the wind comes, the mental wind comes and picks it up, and, and our minds and our hearts are just full of whirling dust. So that's, that's one quality. Um, another is that the, the red dust poses questions to us 
that it refuses to answer. And what I mean by that is, if we think of the story of um, Siddhartha before he became the Buddha, he's living in this palace and everything is perfect and controlled and nothing ever changes or happens. And um, through the intervention of the gods, he sees the four signs. He sees um, someone who's who's ill and um, and um, someone who's grown very old, someone who's died, and then he sees someone whose eyes are clear in the face of all of that. And there's nothing in the context of the palace to, to explain to him what those things are or what they mean. And that's what I mean by life, you know, poses, the, by its nature, poses these questions. Why, do we, why are we born? Why do we die? What are we meant to do? What does all of this mean? Why is there evil in the world? You know, why, why is this country so, you know, it's the fill in the blank. Um, so those questions are asked, but there's no there's for some of us there's no satisfactory answer. It, there, it may be and certainly probably is that there are many people for whom you know Catholicism or the John Birch Society or high colonics or meditation or something is like you know is the answer that the world provides and it's a satisfactory answer. It's a sufficient answer, but sometimes for some of us it's not. So, um, in the in the long arc of things, there comes a time when I think we have to leave the red dust town, because if we don't, we will just sink into it and become part of it. So then we go into this other realm, which is um, which I'm thinking of now as deep into the mountains. And um, deep into the mountains is when we leave the red dust town for a while or for a long time and um, look for that that reality that we've caught glimpses of in the red dust world. And when you've caught a glimpse of that, either through you know a moment in the natural world or the judicious application of psychedelics or you know whatever it is that does it for you, but when you've seen that world that seems obscured by the red dust, you have you know you can't not believe it's real. And so many people leave the town to go deep into the mountains to look for that shining world of which they've had glimpses in the town. So there's a whole long passage that happens there that involves um, not just solitude and meditation and training, but also you know purifying fires, also times when um, we feel as though we really are having everything stripped away from us. But if we, if we stay with it, um, something beautiful can happen. And it's equally important that we don't stop there. If we stay deep in the mountains, we get lost just as surely as we would have gotten lost in the red dust world, just in a different kind of way. So in, in the koan journey, you have to come back. There has to be a third movement. And the Collins call it returning to the charcoal fire, which is when we come back to the red dust world, but transformed in some fundamental way that also transforms that world for us. So we are a new person living in a new world. But it's right there. It's the same world. you know, And we just see it and experience it differently. And in seeing and experiencing it differently, differently we allow it to be different as well.
The image of returning to sit by the charcoal fire is particularly poignant to me um, because of that sense of the raging fire, the fire of the fire sermon, that where everything is just a flame all the time and it feels out of control. That fire has been brought into containment. It's in a fire ring or a brazier or however you want to imagine it. So that's and so now it has the capacity to give light and to warm us rather than to uh, create obscurations of the world. And also, I think of a, a fire as a place where people gather around and tell stories. But my sense is that the stories we tell around the charcoal fire are different than those stories we were telling ourselves earlier about life in the red dust. That there's something in there where we begin, we've stepped outside of the, the monovision of our own stories and are creating stories that contain more of us, that contain a larger view and have more than one voice. Um, one of the things about making this journey, I think, is the willingness and in the end the deep desire to give up the monologue for the conversation. And that seems like the great Mahayana move. So um, that's, the, that's the large arc of things. And I think I'll start back at the beginning in the world of the red dust and speak over time about various stages on, on that journey. And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is um, when we have um, a story or a view of our childhoods, particularly, I think, in, in mainstream American culture, the, the pull of childhood is so strong, the romance of childhood. And by romance, I mean in the old-fashioned sense of the sort of the adventure story or the compelling, you know, the compelling narrative of, um, of childhood. And um, if you'll forgive being a little bit autobiographical about this, but it's a way I can, I think, make the point maybe a little clearer. Um, what it's like to give up that the narrative that that we had as inhabitants of the red dust. So I was thinking about my own childhood, um, and I, I grew up in a family which is probably will probably sound really familiar to a lot of you. It's a really common American story, where the kind of the the d- description of the family that was given was really different than what people were actually experiencing. Mm-hmm. So there, from, from the get-go, there was this huge disconnect between the appearance of things and the experiences we were, especially the children, were actually having. Um, and those experiences involved some pretty difficult stuff, as they often do in, in those circumstances. So I could tell you a story about my childhood, you know, that involves kind of... Um, Danger and violence and all that kind of stuff, and that would be true. I mean, those you know, those are facts. Those things happen. But I find that more and more, what's more interesting as a way to hold my childhood is that, you know, if I believe any of this, and I don't even know if I do, but if I believe that I seem to have come in like roaring with questions, you know, I came in like, okay, you know, mm-hmm. let's go, let's figure this out. This is this is really big and really beautiful and really strange, and we're just going to go for it. Um, if I came in like that, I had a childhood perfectly suited to um, to, to uh, promoting that in me, to stimulate, to provoking that in me, um, 
because of this dis disconnect between appearance and what, what, what seemed like felt reality. Um, so is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? You know, I don't know. I can't, I can't even say anymore. I, can't, I don't really have much of an opinion about it. And, um, and I don't, I want to make really clear that I'm not saying that the goal is to replace a bad narrative with a good narrative, you know. Find something to, to feel happy about. That's not the point. But the point is, can you expand your view to take in contradictory and paradoxical truths about your childhood simultaneously? And what's it like when you do that? What's it like when you step out of the tight story and begin to see it in a lot of different ways and to hold all of them as possibly true and possibly not true, you know? So that there's a kind of um, creation that's going on all the time that you're aware of. You're, you're creating your own past in a way, and you're w aware of the fact that you're creating it. Um, so I think I'll, I'll stop there to leave some time for conversation, but I'll keep, I'll keep going on this, keep expanding this idea. I wanted to just give a, a flavor for um, the beginnings of the journey in the red dust and how our relationship to what happens there can really change having had the experience of stepping out and going deep into the mountains and then coming back. So please I welcome your comments and questions. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.